0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Philip Johnson's The Coming Death of Darwinism, Why Your Grandchildren Won't Believe in Evolution, from our audio collection titled Darwinism and the Constitutionality of God. Our speaker tonight is Mr. Philip Johnson. He is one of the preeminent minds in the argument of origins. Born and raised in Aurora, Illinois, Mr. Johnson graduated from Harvard and the Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Chief Justice Roger Traynor of the California Supreme Court and Chief Justice Earl Warren of the United States Supreme Court. Philip Johnson joined the faculty of the Bolt School of Law at the University of California at Berkeley in 1967. He has been a professor emeritus since 2000. Johnson Johnson has served as deputy district attorney while on leave from his teaching duties and has also held visiting professorships at Emory University and at University College London. With the publication of his book Darwin on Trial in 1991, he began a second career as one of the foremost critics of Darwin's theory of evolution and its wider sociological and cultural implications. Mr. Johnson is one of the key leaders of the intelligent design movement and has done much to help these ideas gain acceptance and a wider hearing worldwide. He is, the author, he is the author of several books on evolution, philosophical naturalism, and other cultural issues and speaks extensively around the country. His Leading Edge column appears regularly in Touchstone Magazine. We once again thank you all for coming tonight and would ask that you approach this topic as all jurors are asked to, With a solemn meditation upon the truth of what is being presented and each proposition's further implications.
1: A lecture uh, with something from the current news to show you that I'm talking about something that's really up to date. Uh, Now, uh, tonight, what's on my mind is the exciting. A scandal we've been going through the past two weeks involving CBS News (laughs) and certain forged documents that they displayed on television. Now, this uh, involves the current presidential campaign, but that's not the reason I'm bringing it up. Uh, I don't care. You can vote for Kerry. You can vote for Bush. That's got nothing to do with what I'm going to say tonight. Uh, I, I use this CBS News example because it shows us something about the shifting changing lines of authority and communication of authority to our public, and that would help explain why I think that it's possible uh, that uh, the Darwinian theory of evolution that has been absolutely secure as knowledge, has been taught as fact in high schools, colleges, and television programs uh, for all my adult life, that this theory might now be coming into trouble. That has to do, in part, with the changing lines of authority and methods of communication. So, you know that uh, on Wednesday, September 8th of this year, uh, uh, the uh, the CBS News 60 Minutes uh, television program uh, uh, concentrated on uh, uh, longstanding rumors that uh, President George W. Bush uh, got favored treatment due to political pull to get into the Texas Air National Guard during the Vietnam War over 30 years ago. Uh, and maybe uh, uh, he got some favored treatment in excusing some uh, inconsistent performance of his duties uh, during that uh, time. So uh, these had been rumors but now the 60 Minutes program was going to show them to be much more than rumors uh, to be fact and they they put on the air uh, some documents uh, allegedly obtained from the personal files of a Lieutenant Colonel Killian uh, now deceased uh, who was uh, Lieutenant Bush's superior officer in the, the Texas uh, Air National Guard in those years. And uh, supposedly, uh, uh, Colonel Killian had written to his file memoranda about how powerful people were intervening in behalf of Lieutenant Bush to get him favored treatment. So this was dynamite in the political campaign. It was uh, thought to be a very... Uh, Usable against uh, Bush in the the election. They were very excited at CBS News as they went ahead with this. Uh, but then uh, the 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 next day, uh, the internet exploded with uh, reports that the documents, which uh, had allegedly been typed by this uh, Colonel Killian 30 years ago on a typewriter, and had just now come to light, were in fact forgeries. That uh, uh, There are a lot of people on the internet who know a lot about computer programs like word processing programs, and they recognize that these documents appeared to have been produced not on a 1972-era typewriter, but on uh, Microsoft Word, (laughs) Uh, probably within the last few years at some time. Now, uh, CBS News at first responded to these complaints indignantly uh, on the, two days after the broadcast on September 10th, uh, the uh, famous uh, news anchor Dan Rather issued a statement that CBS uh, News stood behind its documents and attributing the controversy over them just to partisan political operatives trying to confuse the situation when the documents were genuine because he said we we, we have a, an uh, unimpeachable source who provided the documents and knew where they came from, these personal files of Colonel Killian. And then um, further statements were made to back up their position by CBS News, including one that was particularly delightful. The president of CBS News said to the press, who are you going to believe, CBS News uh, with its elaborate system of checks and balances and its reputation for accuracy, or a bunch of guys sitting around the house in pajamas sending email messages? (laughs) The idea they sat around the house in pajamas, that meant they didn't go out and do any investigating. Well, that was uh, a very uh, funny uh, put down of these people. Well, uh, it turned out that the guys in pajamas were right. <laughs> and, and that uh, just uh, this past Monday, September 20th, uh, uh, Dan Rather had to go to the air with a very abject uh, statement of apology, uh, saying, uh, uh, that CBS could not authenticate the documents, well, that was an understatement. <laughs> but, and so uh, it was great embarrassment, which will, which will continue as there's going to be an investigation uh, into how all of this happened, maybe a criminal investigation, and uh, there could be much further embarrassment for uh, the, the, the network out of this. Now, I bring this up, as I say, not to make any points about the presidential campaign directly, but uh, rather that we see something that could not have happened uh, 25 years ago or 20 years ago uh, before the growth of the internet and the new media, also uh, talk radio. is very important. Uh, when, when I was a student age, uh, we got the news from uh, the three network uh, television news broadcasters with their anchors, and uh, uh, the elite newspapers that, uh, like the New York Times and the Washington Post, and if the uh, established news organizations didn't cover something, you didn't find out about it. See, so uh, you would not have had this explosion of controversy on the non-existent internet. <laughs> you know, back then there wouldn't have been any way for anybody to have. Uh, known uh, uh, what was going on to investigate it that way. Reaction would have been slow if it had occurred at all. But times have changed. And so now it is possible for the guys in pajamas uh, through... Uh, internet communications and appearances on things like talk radio uh, uh, to take the agenda away from the established organizations that have been used to being able to tell the people the information and assume that they would have to be believed because the people wouldn't uh, be hearing from anybody else of comparable uh, influence and uh, power. Well, that uh, was what's happened. It it has changed that uh, the people we often call the gatekeepers, the ones who decide when information will go out to the public, um, aren't keeping the gates as well as they used to. They can't uh, because there are ways to go around them through what are often called the new media and uh, uh, particularly the the internet. So the the information uh, does uh, get out. Now, it so happens that the growth of the internet came at just about the same time that uh, the intelligent design movement in biology was founded. Uh, This uh, event occurred uh, after the publication of my first book about evolution, Darwin on Trial, in 1991. Uh, I'd written other books about criminal law Uh, But the the only people that bought those books were uh, law students, and they had to buy them because the professors assigned them. (laughs) So, Darwin on Trial was the first book I ever wrote that people bought because they wanted to read it. (laughs) And the purpose of that book and the intelligent design movement that grew up in the, the wake of the book was to reformulate the debate about the theory of evolution to put the question in a more useful way. The a, a debate had been seen for many years to be a debate between the Bible and science. And the, the general uh, way in which the, the story was presented to the public by these news programs and educational programs with the gatekeepers in charge of uh, how it was uh, pr- pr- presented. Uh, uh, one way that it was presented was through uh, a dramatic medium of uh, the movie Inherit the Wind. I I bet a lot of you have seen that. Uh, A movie came out in 1960, uh, uh, which is a highly fictional telling of the story of the Scopes Trial of 1925. In that Scopes Trial, two famous uh, lawyers, uh, uh, a three-time presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryan and uh, uh, Clarence Darrow, uh, squared off over whether uh, a teacher would be punished for teaching evolution in the schools of uh, Dayton, Tennessee, this little town in Tennessee, uh, uh, when there was a state law which said you shouldn't teach evolution in the schools. so this was presented to the public in this movie, Inherit the Wind, uh, as a great triumph for evolution. And uh, it's a straight good guys versus bad guys story. The good guys are The scientists and the the science teachers who want to teach evolution bring some light into the darkness of superstition of this Tennessee town. And the bad guys are the Christian ministers. They are shown in the opening sequence as gathering outside the schoolhouse like a, a kind of a band of Ku Klux Klan thugs to go in and arrest the teacher and drag him off to jail and persecute him. So the Christian ministers are everything evil they have no good qualities whatsoever. And uh, the uh, science teacher is the martyr, the sort of Christ figure who is doing good. Uh, uh, so uh, this is the picture. The, I call it the inherit the wind stereotype. Uh, and the, the stereotype basically tells people that uh, science has shown that we are the products of uh, evolution by natural selection, a purely natural process. And people who know about the scientific evidence all believe that. Then there are other people who either have never heard about the scientific evidence or, or who, having heard about it, are so prejudiced that they don't pay any attention to it. And they just thump their Bibles. And as the, uh, the townspeople in this a fictional town, the version of Dayton, Tennessee, but a fictional town in the movie Inherit the Window, they just march around the town throughout the movie singing, give me that old time religion, give me that old time religion, it's good enough for me. So this was the Inherit the Wind stereotype. And you can see, when the issue is put that way, uh, who's going to win the argument? There's only one side that can, can win, uh, and that was the way that the gatekeepers were presenting the story of conflict over the theory of evolution. Well, I thought that there was a different way to look at this conflict, and that was the thesis that I presented in that book, Darwin on Trial, published in 1991, just as the internet was starting up. Email was a kind of a new thing, and the world wide web was coming along. Now, uh, uh, and, and what I said was uh, Uh, I've been reading about uh, this subject. I'd been on a sabbatical leave in England and I didn't have anything to do really. Um, I I had told the university that I was going to study insurance law, but I never got interested in that. Uh, I stumbled across evolution instead. began reading about biological evolution, studying up about it, and I saw something really interesting about it. Something that excited my interest as a as a lawyer, as a law professor, an analyst of controversies. I said, uh, I was reading a book by Richard Dawkins, the most famous British Darwinist, uh, showing how natural selection did all these wonderful things. It created all the complicated things like bird's wings and bats, bat sonar that they navigate by and vision and all, all, everything. It had been done by natural selection. Now what I noticed was that Dawkins asserted this position throughout the book but he never showed you any experiments that demonstrated that it was so. And he just told you it was so and, and his reasoning that it was so was that natural selection had to be our creator because nothing else was available to do the job and that's how we, and in fact he said that even if if life exists on a distant planet in a in a distant galaxy where we can never make any observations. so we'll never go there. We know that that life on that distant planet evolved by Darwin's mechanism of random mutation and natural selection. How do we know that? Not from observation, but because what else could have happened? What else was available to do the creating of life on that distant planet? Well, you might say God created, but that's religion, that's not science. And scientists can't take account of religion, and so that's out of court. See, we can't consider that. So with God out of the picture, there's nothing left but chemical combinations and and natural laws Uh, in in the history of biology that becomes random genetic changes or mutations and natural selection, the competition between organisms to see which is the fittest, which one leaves the most offspring. That must have been responsible for the development of life on a distant planet just as it was on Earth because nothing else was available to do the job that is eligible for consideration within science. Now I thought, well this doesn't satisfy me. I understand that if you rule God out of the picture, you rule the creator ineligible for consideration, then it follows as a matter of logical deduction without any need for any evidence that something at least roughly like Darwinian evolution has to be true, because there isn't anything else. Uh, in, in terms of the ultimate origin of life on Earth, uh, the, you, the theory that is in the textbooks that uh, there was a soup of chemicals on the early Earth out of which through some ch- mixture of chance and chemical law, uh, a living organism spontaneously emerged. A simple living organism. Well, this has to be true. It's never been seen to happen. No experiments have been able to demonstrate this process. Uh, In fact, all of the experiments end in failure. But uh, we know it must be true anyway, don't we? After all, what else could have produced the first living organism? Well, you're not going to say God because you already know that's you spend two minutes in the penalty box if you say something like that. That's not eligible for consideration. So uh, if if the creator is out of the picture, then natural forces had to do the job, and the reigning Darwinian evolutionary theory supplemented by a chemical evolution of the first life at the beginning, this reigning theory has to be true, because there, there isn't anything else. The The only debate would be over the details, but the broad outlines of the theory are true by definition. So. I thought we ought to formulate this debate differently. We don't need to bring the Bible into the debate or the question of the age of the earth, the standing of the book of Genesis. We can leave that aside, at least for the time being, because the conflict that is interesting here is not any conflict between science and the Bible. we talk about that another time, but that's not the primary conflict that's of interest. The primary conflict is One between two definitions of science. There are two conflicting definitions of science at work here. One, according to one definition, which is the one you hear about most often, science is a process of investigating evidence impartially and testing hypotheses or theories by experiment. Well, then. What happens if we say there's a, a, a hypothesis that uh, natural selection, in Darwin's theory, is a, uh, a device of enormous creative power which could take a, a one-celled living, civil living organism, and over time, in the right conditions, it could produce complex plants and animals and even human beings. All the way up to John Kerry and George W. Bush i from, uh, 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 the, um, uh, the way uh, uh, skeptics sometimes uh, uh, lampoon this theory is, uh, it's from uh, goo to you via the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, now, um, if, uh, uh, see if we say there's a hypothesis that, Chemical combinations spontaneously can produce life in the first place and then natural selection can carry the process on from there with great creative power to make wings and eyes and brains and all the things that plants and animals have. Uh, uh, and we say, has that been tested by, if that is tested by experiment, is it true? Well then the answer is, it's, it's, it's either it's never been tested by experiment or else it has been tested and it's failed the tests. Either way, it hasn't been confirmed. Uh, it's uh, uh, On the first definition of science where any theory has to be tested by experiment and experiment has to demonstrate that the theory is true or could be true, then the theory of creation of living things by natural selection uh, uh, isn't successful. Uh, so, uh, but it is successful if you apply a second definition Then the theory is rescued. The second definition is that science is the process of explaining everything in the world on the basis of natural causes and natural causes only, excluding God. Well then, now we see the theory of evolution by first the chemical evolution to get life started and then natural selection to carry it on from there has to be true because there's no alternative. And according to the second definition, the most plausible naturalistic explanation is, is accepted as scientific knowledge. If there's no better explanation, then it's, it stands uh, uh, indefinitely. And that's what's happened with Darwinism. So I said, the real conflict here is between the two definitions of science. And uh, according to the first definition, the theory fails, and we just don't know how complex biological organisms and their complex organs uh, were created. Science uh, had this one idea, Darwinian evolution, but it hasn't been confirmed by experiment. But according to the second definition, which actually trumps the first definition in case of conflict in our culture, uh, then the theory stands as true anyway. Because the alternative would be religion. It would be creation by God, and that's unacceptable. Science is dead against that. So I I, I thought, let's put the question that way. And that was how the intelligent design movement uh, got uh, started. And uh, that movement had a particularly great success then, I'll fast-forward a bit, to the year 2001. They've now been in business about 10 years, and we're up to 2001. In June 2001, in a session of the United States Senate, Senator Rick Santorum, a Republican of Pennsylvania, got up to propose a resolution. Uh, The uh, uh, President's Leave No Child Education Act was under consideration in the Senate. Uh, uh, Senator Santorum had uh, heard a, 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 a me speaking in Washington D.C. Uh, not long before and we'd had some discussion and he had decided that he wanted to introduce a resolution uh, in support of my view of the evolution controversy. Uh, the view that I uh, had said was what, what the schools ought to do with evolution is teach the controversy. They ought to teach biological evolution as the mainstream scientists believe it. That's knowledge they should have. But they also ought to teach why uh, many people find that it's not convincing. And I've just explained to you why I, for one, had found that it's not convincing, the contradiction between the two definitions of science. So uh, uh, I volunteered to uh, provide some statutory language to Senator Santorum, uh, and uh, 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 he did uh, uh, introduce a resolution uh, 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 to this uh, uh, as an amendment to the Education Act that was going through the Congress right then. And uh, what it uh, said was this. It's two simple sentences, the Senator said. Um, uh, it, is, uh, it is the sense of the Senate that one, now first sentence, good science education should prepare students to distinguish the data or testable theories of science from philosophical or religious claims that are made in the name of science. Sentence one, students should learn the difference between philosophical claims and testable scientific theories. Sound like a good idea? That's something that they ought to learn. And sentence number two then, building on that said, where uh, biological evolution is taught, the curriculum should help students to understand why this subject generates so much continuing controversy and should prepare the students to be informed participants in public discussions regarding the subject. Does that sound like it would be controversial? You want a well-educated citizenry. You have a controversy over evolution and in fact, uh, we know from public opinion polls that are accepted on all sides as accurate that uh, approximately 90% of the US public, 90% of the people in this country are skeptical of the theory of evolution to one degree or another. Half of those, that 90%, believes in the biblical story in Genesis, and the other half of the 90% believes in God-guided evolution over millions of years. Now, you see, the God-guided evolution isn't really evolution at all. Uh, because the scientific community requires that any theory to be eligible for consideration must be completely naturalistic. It must not involve any supernatural element like God. See, so, so God-guided evolution is not evolution in that definition, it's slow creation. <laughs> so, the, so, uh, so, so those people are not, as they often think that they are, combining evolution and creation and believing in both. See, what they believe is evolution isn't really evolution. So here is a public that uh, needs to have this straightened out, don't they? See, you, you need an educated public so they know exactly what this issue is about and that's what the second sentence of the Santorum Act says. So we had that two sentence uh, resolution. Senator Santorum proposed it. And as you, everyone knows, I suppose, uh, he's notorious enough nationally, he's a conservative Roman Catholic Republican senator. the uh, Next per- senator to speak stood up, was the Democratic floor manager for the bill One you've heard of, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. Senator Kennedy said, oh, this is an excellent uh, proposal by Senator Santorum. I hope every senator votes for it. This is what we should do, we should allow the youngsters to discuss these alternative theories with the best information available. So he stood up and spoke for the amendment. Some other senators spoke for it and then a vote was taken and the bill passed the Senate that is the resolution, I should call it, the resolution passed the Senate by a vote of 91 to eight. Practically unanimous. And all the liberals voted for it. Ted Kennedy, John Kerry, John Edwards, all of them voted for it. The next morning, the storm broke. The science educators in their lobby and the teachers union got in and said to Ted Kennedy and the others, what could you have been thinking? This is utterly unacceptable. If this happens, there's gonna be a disaster. You know, this is one of uh, those tricks that the creationists play. And they, they describe it as a thinly disguised creationist measure. Now, why were they worried about this measure? All it said was that people should be educated to know the difference between philosophy or religion on the one hand and testable scientific theories on the other. And they should make intelligent comments about evolution rather than uninformed ones. They should be educated on the subject. And there's a controversy, and uh, this was what was so dangerous, that uh, the science educators knew that this would be big trouble. And now, it, it wasn't because the bill, although I had drafted the bill, it didn't say that Phil Johnson and his friends would do the teaching. <laughs> no, it would be the same teachers subject to the same scientific direction uh, from the, the, the gatekeepers who would do it, but they knew it was going to be trouble anyway because they knew that passage of this bill would send a message to the public. If it came into law, it would send a message to the public that it was okay to raise the kind of questions I had been raising. The difference between the two definitions of science. Science as a philosophy and science as testable theories, tested by experiment. And once that got into the discussions about evolution, there was going to be trouble. They didn't know what they could do uh, to to defend the the theory. That was the great difficulty. Now, the the, uh, science education lobbies uh, uh, did everything in their power to try to keep the uh, language out of the final bill. And there was, uh, uh, they had some success, but not all the success that they needed to have. Uh, What happened in the end was that uh, the, the, the House, you see, but after, after this had happened, after the Senate took its vote, I had a stroke and was in the hospital completely out of communication for some time, some weeks, and uh, 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 so uh, I, I thought that this was the end of it. I didn't think it was, it was going anywhere, but it turned out that some of our friends in Washington with Senator Santorum uh, managed to get this amendment. It, the House passed a bill without a comparable sense of the House provision, but so the, so the House bill and the Senate bill were slightly different by this one section, and so that when that happens, they have to appoint a conference committee of senior members of the House and the Senate who get together and then decide on the final form of the bill. And the language, the Santorum language that was in the Senate resolution that had passed ended up in the conference committee's report that goes with the bill. It uh, was voted on and approved by both houses of Congress and then went to the president. And so that's uh, in the uh, committee report for the, uh, the Leave No Child Education Act, which is governing all you know education in this country and now. Uh, the uh, science educators lobby, of course, and the science organizations are saying, oh, it's not part of the bill. It's just in the conference committee report. And uh, if, if any of you know something about these legal uh, arrangements, uh, The fact of the matter is that it's true that the Santorum language is not in the bill proper. You know, it isn't directly enforceable. However, language in a joint conference committee report is the most authoritative source, you know, that any court or administrative agency will look to normally in order to interpret the language which is in the bill. Words like science and education. See, what does the bill mean when it speaks of science education? Science and education. Well, that's uh, a court or administrative official would look to the committee report ordinarily for an authoritative guide to how to interpret those words. Now, um, uh, the uh, this is where that controversy stands uh, for now, and what is going to happen in the future with this uh, 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 bill? Well, my theory is, and I can't prove it yet, we'll have to see what happens in the future, but my theory of what is going to happen in the future is that eventually public debate will have to occur under a framework of rules uh, that is like the Santorum Amendment. That that, that eventually is going to have to happen. In the first place, we have 90% of the public that is discontented with being told, this is the theory of evolution, you better believe it, and no back talk allowed. And they're teaching their youngsters to be skeptical as well. And uh, a million youngsters right now in this country are being homeschooled, at least a million. See, so the word is getting around. This is the new media, you know, that, that it's getting around. And, and sooner or later, the science authorities are going to have to address this controversy in an honest and fair-minded way. And that would, would lead them to a framework, something like the Santorum Amendment, rather than a you know, shut up and believe it framework. Uh, and moreover, it is in the nature of education in this country that we are educating people not to be robots but to be citizens of a self-governing republic. So, so think about that. Uh, when t- Youngsters in high school today or in college today, uh, as they get a little bit older, will become citizens and voters. They will sit on juries. They will become elected to state legislatures in the U.S. Congress, um, and and they may be appointed as judges. See, this is what citizens do. They uh, conduct these uh, responsibilities of government. And as, uh, let's say, as judges, they have to decide whether expert testimony that is claimed to be scientific really is scientific or not. Well, they have to decide that. As jurors, after the evidence is let in by the judge, they have to decide whether to believe the scientific testimony or not. As legislators, they have to enact laws, like the Santorum you know, am- amendment to, uh, uh, for how uh, what should be regarded as good information and bad information, as scientific knowledge and as mere speculation. See, So, so we're educating citizens to be self-governing uh, in, a, in a free republic, and on that basis, do we have any alternative over the long run but to allow them to explore the controversial issues of the day and to educate them so that they will do so intelligently to say to these citizens, well, you shouldn't have any controversies and you shouldn't be speaking to them. You should just be listening to what the members of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington tell you and, and believe it. You know, but now, this, uh, this doesn't sound like science at all. It sounds like religion in the pejorative sense. You now, the College of Cardinals says it, and you believe it, and, <laughs> and don't, uh, don't question it. Uh, 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 religion isn't really like that anymore, if it ever was, but it appears that science is, at least if, uh, if, if people are not allowed to, to question the uh, uh, dogmatic statements that come from a science, and particularly when they suspect that what they are getting is not really the results of scientific experiments, but its philosophical claims, like philosophical na- naturalism. Nature is all areas. Nature had to do its own creating. Therefore, God is out of business. Forget God. That sounds to people like a philosophical claim, rather than at the result of a scientific experiment. And uh, uh, eventually, they're going to have to be allowed to question it. Even if the courts should say, "Well, you can't question Darwinism," the Darwinists will argue. They will have their lawyers there who will argue that, uh, uh, "Well, uh, we, uh, uh, we we can't allow you to question Darwinism." See, because if you did, if, what, 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 else, what, what would you be questioning it in order to advance? If Darwinism isn't true, then what would be true? God. That would be religion, and religion is by de- definition false. See, and e- even to have the desire to uphold a religious teaching shows that you have a bad motive and an unconstitutional motive, and so you shouldn't be allowed to do that. That will be the argument that will be be made, but how can that succeed over a long period of time? It has been succeeding, by the way, pretty well for for the past 50 years, Uh, but uh, its day, I think, is doomed. Um, And that's why I began with this little anecdote about CBS News today, uh, because I I remember, in my days as a a student, how Walter Cronkite would come on uh, CBS News, and. And he would, in this, he sounded just like everybody's uncle or grandfather. This trusting voice, trust me, I'm Walter Cronkite, and we would get the news and, and, and believe it. And it was, see, there wasn't a chorus of dissenting voices on the, on the internet. <laughs> so, and, and, and communications aren't what they were back then. They Now, uh, uh, the guys in pajamas can effectively get their say and even win the argument. And so in, in that culture, we're going to have to have a much more open, uh, uh, fair-minded debate over issues that people are concerned about, uh, even if the reigning scientific authorities say, well, you're only concerned about these things because you don't uh, know enough about it, and if you would just shut up and listen to us, then we would tell you what to think about it, and you wouldn't have to worry anymore. Uh, but that, that cannot uh, work uh, uh, over the long run. And so, so what is going to happen, I believe inevitably will happen is that a public debate will go forward and be legitimated where the, the Darwinists have to prove their case without being aided by this presumption that the case is true whether or not there's any evidence. I, say, um, uh, I think, by the way, this is actually is what uh, happened with CBS News and the people, that they were so sure that Bush had to have gotten into the National Guard by pull and you know, skipped out on his duties and then got saved from disciplinary action by Paul. They were so certain that that had to be true that they figured that any documents that uh, showed that must be uh, genuine documents. <laughs> and so they forgot to have them thoroughly checked. <laughs> and this led to that debacle. And when people are absolutely certain of what is, they, they know to be true, they aren't very careful about the evidence. They, any evidence will satisfy them if it, See, if, if, if I tell you that if I drop a, a, a coin here, it will fall down, you're ready to believe it. And if I drop one and show you, you won't say, well, gee, I wonder how he did that trick. We better examine that from several angles to make sure he's not cheating. But if I tell you that, you know, that, but, but I tell you that the coin will fall up and then I drop it and it falls up and hits the ceiling, <laughs> you're going to be more suspicious. <laughs> you're going to want to have this photographed from different angles. And, and look at it, so, uh, so what, what's going to happen in the renewed debate, you see, when we don't start out with an assumption that since God is out of business, uh, natural selection is the only alternative and it must have done the creating regardless of the evidence, it's going to be an entirely new world for the Darwinists and uh, uh, I don't think they're going to be comfortable in it. I know that they're going to be uh, uh, desperate because I saw how desperate they were to prevent the Santorum amendment language from getting into the final uh, uh, act. See, they knew that it was going to create a situation where they were going to be at a a tremendous disadvantage and people whom they think of as religious fundamentalists, they have a broad definition of what a fundamentalist is. These religious fundamentalists would take over and then uh, horrible things would happen like they would lose their research money and so on. And uh, uh, so that was, that was the kind of thing that was worried about and, and, and I think that is a, a fair indicator of what the public discussion is going to be like as we get into a discussion in which the, uh, the Darwinists themselves are not able to make the rules and make the rules ones which allow only their side to score points. See so then, and, and if they're used to playing in roles like that, you can tell that they're not going to be very successful when they have to play on a level playing field. Uh, that they're they're not used to it and, and and won't know how to how to do it. So that is why I think we are going to see, probably in my lifetime and certainly in yours. Uh, uh, the most of you, the student age people out here, uh, uh, a a change. A really drastic change in our understanding of reality, our worldview. Because you see, this theory is not. Um, just a theory like any other it is the centerpiece of the view of reality that is taken for granted in our universities and throughout our society that nature did the creating and that we look to nature and science for all of our information and uh, only primitive people uh, think about God and so that's why we don't teach about that in the schools and this this could lead to an, an enormously powerful change in the whole dynamic of the society and it uh and uh, uh, in, uh, in, in the original days of Darwinism, in the, uh, uh, the Darwinists used their theory to discredit the creation story of the Bible and of the Church of England and to replace the priests of the Church of England and the ministers in America, the Presbyterian ministers in America, to replace those clergy and the ministers and the priests uh, as, as the authorities of the culture. Now, the culture, the dominant figures who the culture looks to, they became the priesthood, the professional scientists with their own creation story. And that was a big shift in cultural power. And we may see another shift. You see, this is what is so dangerous. Particularly from the point of view of the Darwinists about this situation, there could be a big shift in cultural power. Uh, And uh, uh, that is, I think, the greatest debate that we, the great debate that we will be having in the public in America, and I, I believe it is the most important debate that the American public has engaged in since the pre Civil War debates over slavery. See? Is God real or imaginary? See? Is natural selection the true creator? And is God just a mythical figure that people don't know, know not to believe is creator anymore after they learn about Darwinism? or is God really the creator, in which case all of our important knowledge figures, are our, our, our priests, uh, have been wrong and very badly wrong, just like CBS News was wrong in putting those forged memos on the air uh, without uh, checking them out uh, carefully. So that's the situation that we are uh, going to be in and I think you can look forward to, and it's important that we find some way to handle this debate unlike the slavery debate, that we find some way to handle it and resolve it without having a civil war. That's what I was attempting to do, to provide a framework for in drafting the language for Senator Santorum. It became the Santorum Amendment, you see. To find a way of discussing it in a civilized and rational way in the universities, and that's what I think we have to do. The alternative is to fight, And that's not a good alternative at all, and so that's what I hope we're going to be doing. Well, now um, there's the lecture, Uh, and now uh, 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 it's my uh, practice uh, uh, to to, to, uh, divide my uh, time for the program. just about uh, down the middle for the lecture and the question period.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a talk from our audio collection titled, Darwinism, and the Constitutionality of God. If you'd like to hear the rest of the lectures, you can purchase them at canonpress.com.